And I thought, hey, Newsweek, that's one of those sins you were talking about. Or Newsweek, hey, that's your fake news. Because we have copies that go back almost to 30 years after the events happened in the New Testament, not a thousand years later. And that affects how we approach Scripture. That affects what we believe about Scripture. That affects how certain we can be about our Scripture. And so, I, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, according to a Barna survey, Barna survey says that half of the American population is a user of the Bible. And I thought, well, that, that's got to be good, right? Half of the population. But at the same day that the Barna report came out, the Gallup report came out. And the Gallup headlines said that Americans hold record liberal views on most moral issues. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, how can half, over half of Americans be Bible users and yet have the most liberal record of views on moral issues than we've ever had in the history of our country? What is up with that? Then I looked a little bit closer, you know, the fine print kind of stuff. Barna defined a Bible user as someone who uses the Bible four times a year outside of church. Four times a year? You wouldn't have to be a pole vaulter to get over that bar. I mean, just think about it. You could find a scripture verse for your Christmas letter. You could find Proverbs 31 and put it at the bottom of your Mother's Day card. You could probably go to something in Ephesians about fathers in the Father's Day card, and surely you can find give thanks for your Thanksgiving card. That's four times, and that makes you, according to Barna, a Bible user. Well, that's a pretty low bar, and it may explain why there is not, why people are making some decisions that we really question. I think one of the things that we encounter is that that sometimes people look at the Bible and they say, you know, I don't really trust the Bible. You know, our question is, how can I trust the Bible? And perhaps we need to say, why do people not trust the Bible? And it may be because of some fake news. It may be because of some misinformation. It may be because they look at the news and they see, as we recently saw, the egregious failures of those in spiritual leadership positions in the sexual abuse of children that was just revealed in, in Pennsylvania. And people look at that and they go, those two don't add up. That's, that's inconsistent. So I, and their conclusion is, I guess I, I can't trust the Bible. Some people would say, you know, if the Bible were more scientific, I, I, I like scientific answers. And the Bible can't be proven scientifically. You know, it's been a while since I was in some of my science classes, but I think that the scientific method involves observation and then asking some questions and then doing some testing and then repeating those tests to make sure that this guy gets the same answers that this guy gets. Well, here's a problem. We cannot repeat historical events. You see, I can't scientifically prove that Julius Caesar existed. Historically, yeah, I've got lots of evidence. And we need to understand that big difference. And kids, 
this is something that, that I want, to, want you to understand especially. Because as students, you're going to be hearing a lot of things that will make you question whether or not what you do on Sunday morning, what you do on Wednesday night, is really valid. And also to parents, you may be in a work environment that is a little bit hostile toward people of faith. You may be encountering people that say, well, yeah, I know you believe in the Bible and all that stuff. But here's what I want us to understand. While I can't scientifically prove Julius Caesar or Jesus, I can historically prove Julius Caesar. I can historically prove Jesus. And so, so I think that that is so important for us to understand. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1. And I want you to notice what Luke, the writer, says about the book that he is writing and introducing to the people. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us. And notice the next phrase. By those who from the first were What's the word? Eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Then Luke says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the what? The certainty of the things You've been taught. Think about that for a minute. Here is Luke writing the gospel. And he's writing it for a man by the name of Theophilus. You're going to find that guy's name in the first part of the book of Acts. Because Luke wrote that one. And in the book of Acts, Luke is going to say, Theophilus, in the former letter that I wrote to you, he's going to be talking about the gospel of Luke. And he's writing with the same desire to be able to let Theophilus know about the things that happened in the life of the early church. But he says, I'm writing this so that you can know with a certainty. My prayer is today that when we leave this place, we will leave with a greater sense of certainty that what I believe about the Bible, what I find to be true in the Bible, is a reality in which we can trust. Last Thursday night, uh, some of us really old people went to the 50th anniversary celebration of Christ in Youth. I, I find it's, it's so hard for, for, our youth, for our students to think, Dave was in CIY? CIY is cool. 50 years ago, well, I wasn't cool then either, but <laughs> but the thing that you guys get when you go to move and when you go to believe and when you go to all those conferences, you get a commitment to the authority of Scripture, and you are taught from Scripture because Scripture is from God, and you have that certainty, and that's what I want all of us to leave today with. 
is that certainty that Luke talks about. That what we have in Scripture, I can trust because I have that certainty. Would you pray with me about that? Father, in these next few minutes, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be able to speak through the words that I use and that you would touch hearts and minds to draw them closer to the truth and the trustworthiness of your word. And I pray, Father, that when we leave this place, we will leave with a renewed sense of conviction and a desire to be obedient to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at four things that I believe will help us strengthen our faith and strengthen our trust in the Word of God, that I can trust the Bible. And the first thing that I want us to look at is the archaeological record. Now, we're going to leave that on the screen so you have time to spell it. <laughs> the archaeological record. What do we mean by the archaeological record? You know, I think, it is, I think it's important for us to understand that no matter how many fine qualities a book may have, if it claims to be a historical book and it's not historically accurate, we can't trust it. But the archaeology, the record of archaeology, gives us this certainty, gives us this assurance that we can trust it. There was an article written in the U.S. News and World Report, and the writer wrote, a wave of archaeological discoveries is altering old ideas about the roots of Christianity and Judaism and affirming that the Bible is more historically accurate than many scholars thought. Let me give you an example. As famous as David, king of Israel, is, as famous as David is, outside of Scripture and Jewish history, there was no evidence that David ever really existed. I don't know what, what Michelangelo was thinking when he made that little statue and forgot to put the clothes on the guy. I don't know what he was thinking. But there was no archaeology, there was no archaeological evidence to support the existence of David until 1993, Jewish history confirmed, was confirmed and a nearly 3,000-year-old inscription was unearthed in Israel that mentioned David, king of Israel. Time magazine wrote about that and said, the skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend, really. Because there was this evidence from the archaeological record. Critics of the Bible have said that the crucifixion that, of Jesus that we talk about in the Gospels couldn't have happened because there was no archaeological record of crucifixions being done by the Romans in the first century using nails. And so they said the, the record can't be true, the Gospels can't be true because we have no evidence that crucifixions took place by the Romans in Jerusalem using nails until in 1968... A construction crew for the Israeli Ministry of Housing was working on a project in Jerusalem, and in their excavations, they stumbled upon an ancient cemetery that contained the remains of several men who were killed during the Jewish revolt against Rome, 70 AD. And one of the ossuaries, that's, that's, that's like our casket, one of the ossuaries that was uncovered contained the skeletal remains of a young man 
and he had a nail, a spike, a Roman spike, driven through the heel bone. And all of a sudden we realized, hey, I have archaeological evidence that confirms that the Romans did crucify people in the first century in Jerusalem using crucifixion, using nails, and I have the archaeological evidence for it. Here's the second element that I think is important for us to understand. The second element is this. It's fulfilled prophecy. You see, there are a lot of people that make predictions. There are a lot of sports analysts. There are a lot of political pundits. And they all want to speak about the future and the outcomes. And yet, their success rate isn't all that successful at times. But I think one of the, this is one of the reasons why the fulfilled prophecy is so important. But I can trust the Bible because of fulfilled prophecy. Over 300 prophecies are made concerning Jesus, the Messiah. 300 prophecies, more than 300 prophecies, that all came true in the person of Jesus Christ. 300 of them all came true. I want you to take a look at eight of these prophecies. And you see these eight prophecies. In Genesis 12, we, le- we learned that it was prophesied that he would be born of the seed of Abraham. From Genesis 49, from the tribe of Judah. From the lineage of David. Born in Bethlehem, Micah said. Born of a virgin, Isaiah said. He would heal the blind, the deaf, and the lame. That he would, and it described how he would die. And that he would rise again. Eight. Now, I want you to think about that just for a minute. Eight prophecies. Not eight out of 300 are accurate. 300 are accurate. But if you take just eight of those, statistically, statistically, that would be one in 10 to the 15th power. That's one in 100 quadrillion. Now, you probably don't use quadrillion very much in in your normal things, but since I work on the church budget and we deal in those kind of numbers... (laughs) A quadrillion is one with 15 zeros after it. And one in 100 quadrillion is the statistical chance that you could have eight prophecies that all came true in one person. And we have over 300 that came true in the person of Jesus. That's the beauty of fulfilled prophecy. And so when we read in the Old Testament that Isaiah said that there would, he would be born of a virgin, when, when Micah said, oh, little town of Bethlehem, how, no, that's how the song goes. When, when Micah said, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, when Micah prophesied that it would be Bethlehem would be the birthplace, when that it was going to be of the lineage of David, when it was going to be the seed of Abraham, Fulfilled prophecy gives me reason to believe, to trust the Bible. Here's the third element, and that is manuscript discoveries. And and this is is exciting to me. Ian, I was thinking about my freshman year at Ozark, and I had an evidences course, and, and I had never heard any of that information. And I could remember... Every day after class, going back to my dorm room, going, wow, look at that. 
Here is this evidence that proves I believe the Bible. I don't have to have the evidence to believe it, but if I have evidence that supports what I believe, do I not have more confidence in the word itself? And so the archaeological record, the fulfillment of prophecy, but now I want you to notice these, these manuscript discoveries. Now, what am I talking about? We need to remember that the Bible is, is a collection of books. In fact, the word Bible is a Latin word meaning the books or the collection of books. 66 books. And we also have to remember that, that it was written over a 1,500-year time span from when the first book was written to when the last book of the Bible was written. 1,500 years. Forty different writers were used of God to read, to give to us the Word of God. I want you to listen just 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me read from beginning of verse 16. You want to jot this down. It's not in your notes. It's not on the screen. Just let me read it for you. Peter says, we did, not clever, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's a word. That's an important word. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard that voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Transfiguration. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the word of God. That's how we got it. And what we have in the manuscripts. Are copies of that which was written down. The manuscripts that said. This is what it was. This is how we have it. This is what it means. Now when you think about. I've got 66 books. You know, Some critics say. Well the Bible just talks about itself. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible is true. Now wait a minute. The Bible is not just one book. It is 66 books. It, is ha it has 40 different writers. And the consistency of all of that together, yeah, that's a trustworthy historical record. And so we have those manuscripts. And any man when I'm talking about a manuscript, I'm talking about any surviving handwritten copy of an ancient biblical document that predates the invention of the printing press. That's what we're talking about. That's a manuscript before printing. Now, there was a Bible. It was called the Wicked Bible. And it was printed in, 19, in, 19, in 1631. It's called the Wicked Bible because the typesetter, when he was setting the type, left the word not out of the Ten Commandments. Kind of changes it, doesn't it? Kind of changes it. They call it the Wicked Bible. Maybe you know some people that that's their favorite version. I don't know. 
But when we talk about manuscripts, we're talking about these handwritten copies of the biblical documents. Now, I want to, want to just think about how many we have. How many of those? We have almost 25,000, almost 25,000 partial or complete manuscripts of the Bible. Now, let's put that in comparison. There are seven known manuscripts of Plato's writings. Seven manuscripts. There are ten of the writings of Julius Caesar. You know what the closest thing to the Bible is in terms of number of manuscripts available? There are 400 or 643 manuscripts of the Iliad by Homer. I remember having to read it in high school. I think I read over half of the 600 that were there. It seemed like it took me forever. 643 copies of the Iliad. There are 24,633 copies, manuscripts of the New Testament. There are over 3,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament. You see, manuscript discoveries help us be able to look at people and say, yes, I do believe the Bible. Yes, I do trust it as God's word. And yes, I have a reasoned, reasonable faith for doing so. Now, I want to tell you about one fascinating group of manuscripts. In 1947, a little boy was tending his father's flock in Qumran, which is by the Dead Sea, a little south and a little west, or a little north and a little west of the Dead Sea. And while he was looking for a lost goat in some hillside caves, he discovered a collection of large, of large clay jars, and each jar contained carefully wrapped leather manuscripts. Archaeologists later determined that those manuscripts hadn't been touched for over 2,000 years. And what the boy discovered were handwritten copies of the Old Testament that dated as far back as the 3rd century before Christ. Archaeologists spent years searching the surrounding caves, and by the time they finished, they'd found copies of every Old Testament book except the book of Esther. There were 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, 30 copies of the Psalms, and those are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've probably heard about them. You see, one of the reasons it's so important, because many people will say, well, yeah, the Bible was written, but it's been copied down so many times, you don't even know that what you have now is what was said then. That's where the manuscript discoveries come in. Because the translations of the Bible that, we have made, that were made from later discoveries, that when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found out they were spot-on accurate to what had been written 3,000 years before. I trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. And now let me tell you the greatest reason that we can trust the Bible. And the greatest reason we can trust the Bible is the testimony of Jesus. Wait a minute. There you go again. Quoting the Bible to defend the Bible? You bet. Because let me tell you what Jesus did. Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. I want you to notice in John's Gospel, in John chapter 5, Jesus, speaking about his own authority as the Son of God, said, For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. 
the Father sent me to do the work, and, and, the, and the Scripture says this is what I would do, and, and hey, that's what I'm doing. The Father has sent me, and he has himself testified concerning me. And he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he said, if you had really believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. There is, a, there is this connection of old and new. There is this train that runs through the Scripture there is this thought process. There is this identity of the Messiah to come that comes true in the person of Jesus. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus resisted the temptations by quoting from the Old Testament. He said, it is written, and three times he quoted from different passages in Deuteronomy. Repeatedly, Jesus defended and defined then explained the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. You see, there's so much more about God's word that commends itself to our lives. God's word is filled with wisdom, with encouragement, with comfort, with purpose, with peace. God's word is filled with strength when I am weak, with hope when I am in despair. God's word is filled with correction when I begin to go astray. Hebrews 4.12 said, For the word of God is alive and active, Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Apostle Paul reminded young Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Folks, the testimony of Jesus about the word of God gives credence, credence to the fact that we can trust it and we must respond to it. The Apostle John gives us this concise testimony about the life of Jesus. In John chapter, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe and that, Je that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want us to understand something. John said, in fact, in the next chapter, John would say there are more things about Jesus that are not written. In fact, he said, if we tried to write everything, the world couldn't contain it. But these are written so that you may know. These are written so that you may believe. These are written so that you may have life. I hope that we understand something about God's word today. I hope we understand that God has given us his word so that we might be able 
to live a life filled with trust in what God has called us to do, to trust God's word. I can trust it. I can trust it because of the archaeological record. I can trust it because of fulfilled prophecy. I can, I can trust it because of the discoveries concerning manuscripts. But I can trust it because of Jesus' testimony, because of Jesus' life. Folks, at Island Park, God's word will forever be the base of what we do as a church. If it ever stops being that, it stops being the church. But Jesus gives his word so that we might have life. Let me just suggest this. Maybe today you still have some doubts. And I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to tell God about your doubts? You want me to tell a guy I don't believe in? Yeah. Because a lot of people have started a lot of prayers by saying, God, if you're real. God hears those prayers. I think a big light flashes in heaven. Here's another one. God, if you're real. And he says, oh, I'm real, all right, son. Oh, I'm real, all right, sweetheart. Mom, I know you're in the midst of pain right now. I'm real. I know you're crying because you've just lost the dearest person on earth to you. I'm real. Trust me. Perhaps right now you need to, you know that what you need to do is say, Jesus, I want to come to you on your terms. I want to come to you on the terms of your word. Not on what I think I ought to do or what somebody else tells me I ought to do. I want to come to you on your word. I believe your word. I trust your word. Maybe you want to take that communication card, that connect card, and maybe you want to check mark and say, beginning a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're already a believer in Jesus Christ and you want to check that box that says, become a member at Highland Park. Because you see, we don't just have the word because it's a historical document. We have it because it is living and active and it affects how we live. And maybe you need to respond to that like you've never responded before. Father in heaven, I pray that today we would understand what it means to trust you, to trust your word, to trust the beauty of your word, to trust the power of your word. I pray, Father, that today we would understand that what your word says matters in how we live our life today. Your word matters in where we spend eternity. Father, I pray that we'll leave this place fully resolved in the certainty of your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.